Blood, Sweat, and Fear is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus. The series is based on her best-selling books, Blood, Sweat, and Fear, Cold Case Vancouver, and Murder by Milkshake, an astonishing true story of adultery, arsenic, and a charismatic killer. I'm Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Blood, Sweat, and Fear. It's the story of Inspector John Vance, Vancouver's first forensic investigator. This week's episode is called The Manhunt, the same name that I gave the chapter in my book Blood, Sweat and Fear. It was a bit surreal this week putting the episode together while the RCMP and the military were engaged in an actual manhunt for two teenagers who went on a killing spree in northern British Columbia earlier this month. As you'll hear in this episode, the murderer, Walter Pavlikov, managed to elude police for five years after the biggest manhunt in Vancouver's history. On August 25, 1947, more than 100,000 people stood along Georgia, Granville and Hastings Street, waiting for the Pacific National Exhibition Parade. It was the first one in six years because of the war and the largest in Vancouver's history. The parade kicked off at 10.30, and people were lined up five deep along the streets. Some were hanging out of office windows, while others had clambered up billboards or perched on top of trucks parked along the side streets. The crowd clapped and cheered as a hundred decorated floats rolled past. They saw Hugh Elmer's accordion band, police army and air force pipe bands, the mounted police squad and the war vets, whose float had a grave, a cross, and a sign saying, Lest We Forget. Three RCAF Harvards flew low overhead, and people cheered as Hollywood actor Alan Jones drove by. They even cheered for Chief Constable Walter Mulligan as a two-hour parade wound its way through the city. That morning, Walter Pavlikov seemed in fine spirits when he left his room at the Rancho Hotel on East Cordova Street. He told the housekeeper that it was a fine day. She knew him only as a nice boy called Walter Andrew, who had stayed at the hotel for several weeks. Walter's parents had immigrated from Russia in 1907 and lived on Kiefer Street in Vancouver's East End. The family attended the Russian Orthodox Church and the kids went to Strathcona Elementary School. Walter left school in grade 8, but he was bright, he read a lot and he had a well-used card for the Vancouver Public Library. Walter's father died in 1929, leaving the family to struggle through the Depression, and Walter spent his early years scratching out a living at the logging camps along the coast. The rest of the time, he lived at home with his mother. Walter was 19 the first time he landed in jail. He'd been convicted on five charges of robbery in Chicago. After serving a five-year prison sentence, he was returned to Canada and three weeks later received two years at the BC Penitentiary for armed assault with intent to steal. Within weeks of his release, he was back in jail, serving another three years for robbery with violence. Shortly after his release, he was arrested for illegal possession of a gun. When police searched him, they found him with a list of names of prominent citizens under the title, Names I Should Know. Walter called it his sucker list, and told his arresting officers that he'd chosen these people because they had good jobs, nice homes, 
big cars and smoked good cigars. Walter got another three years for possession of a weapon and he was released from jail in November 1946. Inspector John Vance's first brush with the Pavlov family was in April 1934 when Walter's older brother Nick was arrested for robbing the London grocery store at Commercial and Venables. When detectives arrived at his home, they found a pair of men's trousers and an overcoat submerged in a tub of water. Inspector Vance found minute particles of sugar and burlap stuck to the clothing that were very similar to the sugar in the burlap sacks stolen from the store. Nick Pavlikov received a nine-month prison sentence at Ocala Prison Farm. It's impossible to know what Walter Pavlikov was thinking the morning he stood watching the PE parade, a Luger automatic pistol in his pocket. But he didn't appear to be planning a bank robbery. His only planned act later that day was the purchase of a paper bag and a newspaper from George Chin, the owner of a grocery store near the Canadian Bank of Commerce on West Broadway in Kitsilano. The bag was to be used for the cash and the newspaper to shield Walter's Slavic features. After that, his actions went from one tragic absurdity to another. When Walter entered the bank a few minutes before its three o'clock closing time, there were still six customers inside, including David Smith, owner of the hardware store on West Broadway, the Reverend Norman Southcott, and several staff. With the newspaper in front of his face, Walter poked customer John Stewart in the ribs with his gun and told him, Get back against the wall and no funny work. Then he told the teller, This is a stick-up. Don't give an alarm. Then he went to the back of the bank, where his attention was caught by Sidney Petrie, the manager, who was taking a letter out of the typewriter. Petrie had been with the Bank of Commerce for nearly 40 years. He'd stopped a robbery there in 1930, and he was determined to do it again. As Walter moved towards him, the bank manager stood up, leaned forward, and putting his shoulder under the heavy desk, pushed it at the gunman. Walter fired his gun. The bullet passed through Petrie's abdomen, ricocheted off the floor, and then shattered a plate glass window at the front of the bank. Without stopping to collect any money, Walter jumped over a counter and ran from the bank, dropping the paper bag in a crumpled heap on the counter as people screamed and flung themselves to the floor. Robert Soudan, the bank accountant, rushed over to help his boss and asked him if he'd been hit. Petrie told him he didn't think so, and he crawled to the bank vault, got out the gun and handed it to Soudan. Then he leaned against his desk and he collapsed. Soudan turned and ran out of the office after Walter, calling out to one of the tellers to help their boss. The accountant found a Vancouver police constable sitting in his car near the bank writing a report. He told him about the robbery and he and the officer joined in the chase. While this was going on, the Reverend Southcott crawled out from under the cover of the counter, raced into the grocery store next door and told them that it was a bank holdup and to call police. Then he commandeered a car with two young men and sped off after the bank robber as he ran east on Broadway towards McDonald. By now, police had a description of Walter, about 5 foot 10, around 30 years old, with a slim build, sallow complexion, square jaw, deep-set pale blue eyes, dark hair, and wearing a fawn jacket 
and blue hat. Back at the bank, paramedics were trying to save Petri's life, but he died on the way to Vancouver General Hospital. Walter ran through the back alleys of Kitsilano, jumped over fences and dodged between houses. He dropped the gun's cartridge clip in a garden on 4th Avenue, where the homeowner watched from his seat on the terrace. She watched as he ran through her yard and vaulted over the fence. He lost his blue fedora in Tatlow Park, scrambled down over a rock garden and burst through a lower gate to the beach below Point Grey Road. Here he tore off his coat and vest, threw them in the reeds and dashed across the beach towards Kitts Point. Police threw up a roadblock along Barrard Street and searched all eastbound traffic. More police commandeered boats from the Yacht Club to search along Kitts Point and into False Creek. They searched until darkness forced them to stop. Walter had disappeared. He dodged a dragnet of more than a hundred armed police officers. Meanwhile, the clothes, the hat with the initial WP, the key to the room at the rancho, the Luger, the clip with four live rounds of ammunition and the spent bullet found in the street outside the bank were tagged, bagged and handed over to Inspector Vance for analysis and comparison. While police were searching through the homes, rooming houses, hotels and known criminal haunts in the downtown area and the East End, Sergeant Percy Hoare, the hero of the False Creek Flats gun battle just six months earlier, and Detective Arthur Stewart were trying to identify the robber from the discarded clothing and put a name to the initials WP that were found in the sweatband of the hat picked up in Tatlow Park. The detectives spent the morning trying to trace the coat and vest through cloth wholesalers. Their investigation paid off when they reached Ormond Hall, sales manager for Kemp and Company, who told them the company had imported enough of the blue suit material from Australia to make 60 suits, and he gave them a list of the tailors that the company supplied. Detectives Hoare and Stewart hit the streets of Chinatown, checking tailors until finally having some luck at their fifth call at the Wu Onco Tailors on East Hastings Street. Owner Dang Yi Ji's records revealed that he'd sold a suit made from that material to Walter Pavlikov in November 1946, just a few days after his release from jail. The tailor showed the detectives a page from his book with the measurements for Pavlikov and a piece of cloth from the suit material attached. Gradually, other pieces of evidence started to turn up. On September 1st, a gun with a live bullet in the chamber was found buried in the sand at Kitsilano Beach. A few days later, a key to room 47 at the Rancho Hotel was found at the bottom of Trafalgar Street. Around the same time, the front page of the newspapers was filled with stories of the West Kootenay Dukabors. These sons of freedom protested against compulsory schooling and anything that smacked of government intervention, including the registration of births, deaths and marriages. The Dukabors burned their homes and those of others, they threw bombs and they marched naked through the streets. Reports of a reign of terror by fanatical Dukabor torch raiders, as well as wife-swapping, were sharing front-page headlines with a manhunt for Walter Pavlikov. Walter was described as a sallow, shabbily-dressed Dukabor, and while he was of Russian heritage, Walter was no Dukabor. The head of British Columbia's orthodox Dukabors didn't appreciate having people think Walter was part of their fold. He wrote to the newspapers protesting the use of their name in connection with Walter. He said the Dukabor name was being stigmatised 
and the public misled. Court records for Pavlikov listed no religion. For three days, it seemed that Walter had disappeared without a trace. And then on Thursday, August 28th, Pat Ritchie, a prison guard at Ocala Prison Farm, came home to his Surrey farm to feed his 130 chickens. His dog Laddie gave the alarm, and he looked out to see a man he recognised as Walter, a former inmate, trying to steal some of his eggs. Other reports came in from the area. A woman said she was walking down a lane when a man jumped into the nearby bushes. Two teenage girls reported seeing a man in dirty brown clothes peer out of the bushes at them. Armed police from all over Metro Vancouver converged in Surrey, and Vancouver Police Chief Walter Mulligan supervised the search and the 60-man posse. It was the most intensive manhunt in Vancouver Police history, with officers armed with rifles, automatics, submachine guns, sawed-off shotguns and tear gas. Roadblocks were thrown up across all roads and bridges leading in and out of Surrey. Police said if Walter refused to surrender, they were prepared to shoot it out from the ground and from a helicopter. Police borrowed walkie-talkies from the Pacific National Exhibition to use for on-the-ground communication. Walter's mugshot was published in the dailies for the first time on Saturday, August 30th. The photo led to new sightings, either real or imagined, and the chase proceeded south through Newton to the US border. Hundreds of acres, farms and sheds had been searched in a manhunt that cost $10,000 and a manhunt that sent more than 200 hunters, trappers and other civilians to join soldiers and police. But they couldn't find a trace of Walter and Mulligan called off the search. And then 73-year-old Adam Tootle saw Walter's photo in the newspaper. He told police that Walter had turned up at his shack out by the CPR right-of-way in North Burnaby the day after the bank robbery. Walter asked him if he could split some wood in return for a meal. He looked kind of decent to me, so I gave him a meal. He had lots of cigarettes, so he sat around and smoked. He seemed like a nice fellow. Tootle told a reporter. Tootle said he noticed that the heel of one of Walter's shoes was missing and the other one was loose. He gave him some boots and one of his old shirts. The clothes that Walter had left behind, a pair of battered black Oxford shoes and a light-coloured blue shirt, were handed over to Inspector Vance to examine. Vancouver was still in flux after the war. The city experienced a transit strike, a housing shortage, and homeless vets occupied the second hotel Vancouver. Squatters appeared in tents around the city or found abandoned shacks in isolated areas, such as Tootle had done in North Burnaby. Over the years, there were many supposed sightings of Walter Pavlikov, likely from people encouraged by the $5,000 reward, close to $60,000 in today's dollars, put forward by the Canadian Bankers Association. But it wasn't until five and a half years later that the Royal Canadian Mounted Police got their man, the second on Canada's most wanted list. In December 1952, William Moore, the manager of Pollock's shoe store on Toronto's Young Street, was at the police station when he noticed a wanted poster of Walter Pavlikov. He told the police sergeant that he was sure it was the same man who had been in his store and who he often saw around the area. 
He told the sergeant he'd keep an eye out, and when he saw the man a few weeks later, he phoned police. Sergeant Arthur Varley and Constable John Bremner were sent to talk to the storekeeper and told to pick up the man that Moore pointed out to them. Walter insisted his name was Ralph McRae and that he was a carpenter who lived in the area. Sergeant Varley told him there had been complaints of a man hanging around there and he needed to come to the station to sort it out. Walter got in the police car and went quietly with him to the station. He had done nothing to try and change his appearance and he looked just like his mugshot. When police searched him, Walter admitted his identity and told them, I have nothing to hope for and there's nothing I can say that will help me. I know they have a new rope waiting for me out there. I'm glad it's all over. While police were hunting him all over North America, Walter had lived the entire time in the Toronto area, moving frequently and taking odd jobs. Walter was represented by Tom Hurley, one of the best criminal defence lawyers in the country. But with Walter's usual bad luck, he drew Justice Alex Manson, who was known as a hanging judge for his tendencies towards favouring a swift solution to the problem through the death sentence. He called police blundering, inefficient dumbbells and blamed them for the increase in crime. He sentenced 14 convicted murderers to death and after his retirement, he told a reporter that he'd never lost a night's sleep over any of them. Walter's trial opened that March with a jury of 10 men and two women. He appeared in court smartly dressed in a double-breasted grey suit, white shirt, rust-coloured tie and brand-new brown shoes. He pleaded not guilty. Prosecutor Walter Owen read from the letters that police had found where Walter had written to his mother from his Toronto rooming house the previous Christmas. They want to hang me. I expect them to do so. I dread it. At one point, Walter turned to Judge Manson and told him, Your Lordship, I found your behaviour disgusting and you seem to have formed an opinion already as to my guilt. He told the judge that he was making it plain to the jury that he thought he was guilty, showing consideration to the witnesses for the prosecution and showing contempt for witnesses for the defence. It was a case that Inspector Vance followed well into his retirement. His personal boxes are filled with every newspaper clipping from the robbery, the manhunt, the eventual capture and the trial. He kept his summons to court in 1953, four years after he retired, there are even some notes in his own handwriting dated September 2nd, 1947, noting the evidence that he'd received from CIB Superintendent Charles Spence. In a newspaper clipping from the Vancouver Sun on January 26, 1953, Inspector Vance has underlined several points in the story, including a mention of his own name, as having received the Luger clip, the cartridge, the spent and damaged bullet, and the now moth-eaten hat with the initials WP. By this time, Vance had been retired for four years. At the trial, he acknowledged receipt of the pistol, but said that the notes that he took in 1947 were missing from the lab. Without his notes, he said, he couldn't positively state that it was the same revolver. In the end, it made little difference. It wouldn't have proven Walter had fired the gun, just that the gun found on the beach had caused the death of the bank manager, Sidney Petrie. There was plenty of other circumstantial but damning evidence. The clothes in the hat with the initials WP 
found as Walter fled the bank, the letters to his mother, and especially the discovery of the key to Walter's room, it was all enough to convince the jury of his guilt. Judge Manson passed a death sentence, the mandatory sentence for all murder convictions in Canada, until 1962. In the same interview that he'd given on his retirement, Judge Manson said that the most sensational case he tried during his 26-year career was the murder trial of Walter Pavlikov. Walter's defence team immediately launched an appeal. The appeal failed, and his lawyer, Harold Fisher, headed to Ocala Prison to tell his client in person. Walter returned to his prison cell on the second floor of the South Wing, while prison guards prepared his cell on death row. Walter had stolen a kitchen knife and then honed the blade on the concrete floor of his cell until it was razor sharp. When the guard left, he stripped off his shirt, took the knife from its hiding place and stabbed himself in the heart. He then threw himself face down on the floor to make sure that the blade killed him. The prison doctor reached Walter within minutes and desperately tried to bring him back to life so they could go ahead with his hanging. The doctor tried oxygen, stimulants, and when that failed, he made an incision in Pavlikov's chest and massaged his damaged heart by hand. It was too late. Walter may have lost his trial and his appeal, but in the end, he avoided the gallows and chose his own death. This is Eve Lazarus, and you've been listening to Blood, Sweat and Fear. (laughs) 